0: I invite you to turn with me uh, in the scriptures, um, really do a couple of different places. Uh, first of all, in Colossians chapter 1, in verses 15 through 17. And then uh, you may want to put a finger there or try to find in your scriptures then John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And then we're going to turn to John chapter 17 after that. Three different brief uh, scripture passages. Uh, Before we read those, let me give just a brief introduction about what we're doing. Um, In the year 1671, uh, the English Puritan John Flavel wrote a book that I believe is really a spiritual classic. It's what we now call the Fountain of Life, Uh, though in true Puritan style it had a much longer original title. It was a fountain of life opened up or a display of Christ in his essential and mediatorial glory. And in that book's introduction, uh, Flavel exclaims, What shall I say of Christ? The excelling glory of that object dazzles all apprehension, swallows up all expression. When we have borrowed metaphors from every creature that has any excellency or lovely property in it, till we have stripped the whole creation bare of all its ornaments and clothed Christ with all that glory, when we have even worn out our tongues in ascribing praises to him, alas, we have done nothing when all is done. And friends, that's how you and I should feel about the glory of our Savior. And so this Christmas season, uh, when Pastor Collins and I were discussing what we might preach on for these uh, couple of weeks, we thought it would be good to take a break from our regular series of sermons and to preach a brief series of Christmas sermons. And we made the decision to actually use uh, chapters 2 through 5 of the 42 chapters of Flavel's book, but chapters 2 through 5 of his book, Fountain of Life, as a kind of template for a series of sermons that we're going to preach. Now, we're not re-preaching Flavel's sermons, but rather those topics are suggestive for what we're going to preach upon. And so today, I am going to preach on the glory of the pre-incarnate Christ. And then tonight, uh, Pastor Rodney is going to preach on the eternal covenant of redemption. Then in our Christmas Eve service... Uh, I'm going to preach more briefly, but preach on the Father's love in giving us His Son. And then on Christmas morning, a week from today, uh, we're going to see something of the wonder and the glory of the Incarnation itself. So that's where we're headed. I've kind of entitled uh, this series of sermons, Preparing for the First Christmas. Uh, What it is that, as it were, the glory of Christ even leading up to his birth uh, in the manger. Well, with that in mind, again, today's subject is going to be the glory of the incarnate Christ, or I've entitled this sermon, Rich Beyond All Splendor. Uh, And we're going to read from these three passages, uh, Colossians 1, and then John 1, and then John chapter uh, 17. I'm going to be referring to a lot of different passages. It's a little different than my normal sermon where we have one text, Uh, Today we're going to be in a variety of different places as we open up this theme together uh, out of Holy Scripture. So Colossians chapter 1 and verses 15 through 17, speaking here of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, now if you would turn back in your Bibles to John chapter 1, I'm going to read the first three verses of John's prologue. John chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then one final text, and this is going to be out of John chapter 17 and verse 5. This passage in John 17 is Frequently called the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. He prayed this on the night before his crucifixion. We're just going to look at a single verse of this prayer. John chapter 17 and verse 5. Listen here to what the Lord Jesus prays to his Father. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Well, this ends this reading in God's Word. Let's, before we hear God's Word preached, seek the Lord's help in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, our God and Heavenly Father, uh, these scriptures tell us about the glory of the Son, the Lord Jesus And we know that it is indeed the Holy Spirit's ministry to glorify Jesus Christ. And we long that Christ, in all of his essential glory, would be exalted in our minds and in our affections this day. O Lord, our God, by your Spirit, illumine our minds and open our hearts to this truth. We pray, Lord, that we would leave here today changed. Oh, do your good work in us, even as we open your holy word. We pray these things in Jesus' name, uh, Amen. Whenever a person becomes uh, famous, uh, either as an entertainer, or perhaps an athlete, or an inventor, or a political figure, or a uh, a very successful business person, uh, the public inevitably asks the question, well, where did this person come from? And journalists then begin to write stories on that person's background or upbringing or what led that person to this point. And, And then biographies or even autobiographies begin to hit the shelves that tell the story of that famous person. Well there is no one in the history of the world who is more significant than the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Christ who performed uh, many miracles during his earthly ministry, who taught heaven taught truth, who claimed to be the savior of the world and indeed is the savior of the world. Who ushered into the who ushered in the kingdom of God, who died A cruel death on Calvary's tree, but died it for his people, and then on the third day rose again from the dead. There has been no figure in all of human history who is more important than the Lord Jesus Christ. And So if we ask the question about other people, where did they come from? What was their upbringing? How much more important it is that we would ask the same question concerning Jesus Where is he from, after all? Well, in answering that question, we could begin to tell the story that the scriptures tell us, right? Of a virgin named Mary, of a trip that was made to Bethlehem, of a manger stall where a little baby was born, of angels and of shepherds and of wise men, and that would be a good answer to this question about where Jesus is from. But you know that the real story of Jesus goes back even further than that. His biography begins before the manger in Bethlehem. Let me give you just a few verses that tell us that. In John chapter 6, in verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus says, where did I come from? I came down from heaven. Or in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul tells us the significance of the incarnation. And Paul says this. He says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Where did he come from? He was sent forth from God. Or in John chapter 8 and verse 58, there Jesus is in a dispute with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees claim, well, we are Abraham's children. We are his true heirs. To which Jesus, in this debate about origins, goes on to say these words. He says, yes, but before Abraham was, I am. What a statement that is about his origins. So where is Jesus from? He is the one who, was, who has come down. He is the one who was sent from the Father. He is the one who, before Abraham even was, Jesus existed as the I Am, which indicates that He is God Himself. God revealed His name in the Old Testament even as I Am. And friends, in order to understand the manger in Bethlehem, to understand the true identity of Jesus, we need to go back even to where Jesus Himself came from as the eternal Son sent to earth. He is the one who has existed from eternity past. And that's what I want our theme to be in today's sermon. We're going to look at it uh, under five points. These are going to be brief points. Uh, and then we're going to make some points of application at the end. But the five points are these. First of all, we're going to see Jesus' pre-existence as the eternal Son. Then secondly, we're going to see His perfect fellowship. Third, His perfect delight. Fourth, His perfect activity. And fifth, His perfect glory. Jesus' pre-existence as the eternal son, followed by his perfect fellowship, his perfect delight, his perfect activity, and his perfect glory. Well, the first thing that I want us to consider is indeed Jesus's pre-existence as the eternal son. You know, more progressive or liberal theologians make a make a lot of claims that often leave me scratching my head, but probably the one that leaves me scratching my head the most is that many say that the Bible never teaches the preexistence of Jesus Christ. And you just want to say it's absolutely all over the pages of Holy Scripture. I just read for you just a moment ago three passages which clearly say those things. But let me just read for you in order to further plant in your mind the truth and the importance of this doctrine. Just read for you a few other passages as well. Okay, One of them is Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. One of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus. And there it says in Micah 5 verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, now listen here, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Well, let's move forward into the New Testament. Uh, John chapter 1, in verse 1, we read it before the sermon today. There it says, in the beginning, and immediately when we hear those words, our minds should be brought back to the first verse of the entire Bible, Genesis 1 and verse 1, that speaks about the creation of the world. John 1.1 1, 1 says that in the beginning, at the very creation of all things, who was there in the beginning was the Word, already existing, and the implication is, from eternity past, was the Word. And this Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John 1.14 goes on to tell us, it was this Word who was made flesh. So the Word made flesh was the Word who from the beginning was with God and was God. Let me just read a couple other verses too. John chapter 3 and verse 13. John chapter 3 and verse 13. Uh, Here we have uh, the words of the Lord Jesus himself. He speaks to Nicodemus. And he says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. The Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? Was he the one who began at his birth in Mary's womb? No, he is the one who has descended from heaven itself. Or another passage. 1 John 1 and verses 1 and 2. So John's first epistle, verses chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2. And just as John began his gospel with a statement about the eternal word. Here he begins his first epistle, also with a similar statement. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, Here he's describing what his own eyes witnessed as one of Jesus' disciples. The man Christ Jesus was one who he heard with his ears and saw with his eyes and even touched with his hands. Well, what is true about this word that John was the disciple of? He says this, The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it And proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. This one whom he saw was the one who was with the Father and then made manifest to us. Well, just one more passage. And friends, we could spend the entirety of our time going through these. But one more that I want to draw attention to, and it's Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. There we see in this passage, uh, we, we read these words from the Apostle Paul. It says, For, that, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The law could not save any of us in itself. Why? Because we are sinners. And so what has God done that we ourselves could not do? It says this, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. He sent His own Son. And so, friends, the testimony of all of, of Scripture is clear. And we could multiply passages, but it is this. It is that the one who became incarnate that day in Bethlehem's major, the one who had been conceived by the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, this one was none other than the eternal second person of the ever-blessed triune God. It is God the Son. The preexistence of the eternal Son is clearly shown in Scripture. But then we ask the question, well, what can we know about this Son before he was incarnate? If the story of Jesus begins before Bethlehem, what is it that we can know about this eternal Son who then became incarnate? And This leads us on now to our, our second point, his perfect fellowship. His perfect fellowship. What was true of this Son before He became incarnate? Well, it was that He was in perfect fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit. Uh, John chapter 1, again, if we can refer back to that passage at the beginning of John's Gospel. John chapter 1 and verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with, God the word who was God there is one God in essence nonetheless this word was with God okay here we have one of the verses that begins to explain the trinity how God is one in essence and yet three in person father son and holy spirit and the idea is is that these three persons of the eternal godhead live in perfect and closest fellowship one with another. In fact, the word that is translated with in John 1 is a word that could be translated to, even, or toward. It's, a, it's a, an idea that theologians call a perichoresis, a mutual indwelling of the three persons of the Trinity. A perfect fellowship of purpose and of will And of delight. And the scriptures uniformly say that this is what the Son experienced in glory from eternity. This perfect fellowship within the triune God. So John chapter 1 and verse 18, the end of John's prologue, makes the same point. No one has ever seen God, the only God, referring to the Son, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. It's literally in the Greek, who is in the bosom of the Father. And the language, again, is that of close and near fellowship, one uh, with another. we in John chapter 14 and verse 10. Uh, with Jesus speaking there, he says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father? The Father is in me. That language, again, of close Fellowship. Now, some of you have been blessed in your life with really close friendships. Uh, some of you have been blessed with great marriages where your spouse is your closest friend. Uh, many of you have known a, a nearness of fellowship, but I don't think any single one of you here could say that you have ever had perfect fellowship with somebody else, even in the best of friendships. Isn't it the case that sometimes there are disagreements or there are misunderstandings or there's selfishness and there's frustration? And uh, some of these things are partly because we're finite creatures. We're creatures, right? Some of it is because we're sinners. Right? And that kind of perfect fellowship doesn't exist. But do you know that God the Son lived dwelt in perfect fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit. And he knew that perfect fellowship because there was a a perfect love from all eternity among the, the members of the Godhead. You know, we read in the Scriptures, do we not, that God is love. Well, how can love Be a characteristic of God. If God's from eternity and there was no creation, but at a moment in time, how can God forever be a God of love? It is because God the Father, Son, and Spirit loved each other perfectly from all eternity. And that's the source of all true love. It is the love of the eternal God. The Father's love for the Son. The Son's love for the Father. The love of each for the Spirit, then returned to them. It was a mutual indwelling of perfect love and of supreme fellowship. Such is true of the Son. He lived in perfect fellowship. Well, what else can we say about the Son before He became incarnate? This is our third point now. It is His perfect delight. His perfect delight. Do you know that the words pleasure and delight are not dirty words at all? They're wonderful words. Do you know that God made us not to be miserable, but to be supremely happy? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to what? enjoy Him forever. Now, He wants us to find happiness in the true source of all pleasure and delight, which is God Himself. And our problem is is that we so often seek it in a lot of other places. Well, God Himself, as the triune God, is the God who experiences infinite pleasure. That is what God the Father, Son, and Spirit experienced uh, together in one another's company, pleasure, and true delight. Uh, Proverbs 8 and verse 30, it's an interesting text here. In Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 30, it personifies wisdom in this chapter, speaks of wisdom as a person. I think rightly we can understand Proverbs 8 as referring ultimately to Jesus Christ who is the word and the wisdom of God. And there in Proverbs 8 and verse 30, it speaks of wisdom in this way. It says, the Lord says, And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. Pastor Collins actually made reference to this verse in his prayer. and I think there the idea is it's pointing to that delight which the members of the Trinity would know in uh, one another. another, and so within the Godhead there is perfect pleasure, uninterrupted pleasure. Now later in his humanity, Christ would know sorrow and grief; he would become a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But John Flavel points out in his book that he did not know these things before he became incarnate. That in, within the eternal Godhead, that he was never pinched with poverty and wants. He never underwent reproach and shame. His holy heart was never offended with an impure suggestion or a temptation of the devil. He was never sensible of pains and tortures in soul or body. There were no hidings or withdrawings of the Father from Him. There were never any impressions of His Father's wrath upon Him as there would be afterwards in His incarnate state. Instead, what there was in glory was an intimacy, a purity, a constancy to His fellowship with His Father. And because of that, there was a perfect delight within the Godhead. So what was this Son who became incarnate? Well, first of all, He was one who experienced perfect fellowship. Secondly, He experienced perfect delight. Thirdly, or this is our fourth point overall, we, we see His perfect activity. His perfect activity. That is, with the Father and the Spirit, the Son was involved in the activities or the works of God. In fact, theologians rightly tell us that all the works of God outside Himself are the works of the entire Trinity. And so the work of creation and the work of providence is not just the work of one of the members of the Godhead, but is the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so, in John chapter 1 and verse 2, in that prologue of John, he says, indeed, that all things were made through him, through the Son. And without him was not anything made that was made. And so the Son had his hand in the work of all creation, and similarly, the passage that we read out of Colossians makes the same point, does it not? Colossians chapter 1, in verses 16 and 17. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. So there we read the words that by Him, or in Him, all things were created. That is, with reference to Christ, He is the focal point of creation. And then it says that all things were created through Him. That is, He is the agent of creation. All things sprang forth at His command and were shaped by His wisdom. And all things were created for Him. That is, Toward Him for the purpose of Christ and of His glory. And so friends, wherever you look in the world around us, dear friends, the Son, the eternal Son was the agent of creation and it is all here ultimately for Him and for His glory. But not only has Christ made everything, He is also the one who sustains everything that He has made. He is before all things and in Him All things hold together. And so the Son, before he ever was incarnate, was the cosmic Christ involved in the creation of the world and who moment by moment sustains and upholds those things that were made. His perfect activity. But then, fifth, now overall, fifth point overall, his perfect glory. His perfect glory. And here I want to. Just turn our attention to that verse that we read out of John 17 in verse 5. In his high priestly prayer, do you remember those words that Jesus said to the Father? And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. At the completion of his work as mediator... It is the longing and desire of his heart that he now once again would return to that glory in the presence of the Father that he had already had before the world even existed. And so, what can this refer to? But but his divine glory that he ex- that he experienced as the eternal Son. He was. Uh, glorified, and He desired to be reinstated to that honor and dignity and glory which He had laid aside when He assumed human nature. It was a divine glory. What an astonishing thought this is. Again, the divine the glory of the pre-incarnate Christ. You know, I wonder, what is the most glorious thing that you have ever seen? Maybe for some of you, you would point to some time in nature. Maybe mountains or... Large body of water. Others of you would say the most glorious thing I've seen is when I've, I've looked through the lens of a telescope into the vast, the vast skies. Others of you might say it was that newborn baby. It's the most glorious thing that I've ever, I've ever seen. Well, Dear friends, each one of these things are created things. Fashioned by the hand of the cosmic Christ. Even that, even that little baby is a baby who is made in the image of God, but is created in the image of God. And the Son, we are told, the Son himself is the express image of God, eternally begotten of, of, uh, of the Father. Okay? So, who is even more glorious than any of these things? It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son. In all of his glory. You know, in Isaiah chapter 6, and verses 1 through 4, we are given uh, just such an extraordinary picture of, uh, of heavenly uh, glory. Isaiah uh, chapter 6, and verses 1 uh, through 4. And there, it just says that in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. With two He flew. And one called to another. And He said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Friends, it is... A picture of these multitude of angels surrounding the throne, the sight so dazzling that they have to cover their eyes and they cover their feet as they shout forth the glory of this one. Do you know in John's Gospel chapter 12 and verse 41, we are told what it is that is that Isaiah actually saw. It says there that Isaiah saw these things because he, or said these things because he saw his that is, Christ's glory, and spoke of Him. Friends, you and I cannot begin to describe the glory, the eternal glory of this One who became the incarnate Savior of the world. So those are our five points about the pre-incarnate Christ. But let me just now seek to apply this for a few minutes to you. I just want to begin by asking you a simple question. And the question is this, do you believe that these things are true about the Lord Jesus? That is, do you believe that that baby born in Bethlehem's manger was the eternal son sent to this earth, assuming a human nature for us and for our salvation? Do you believe that the identity of Jesus Christ is the very thing that we have spoken of today? And the answer is that you either accept it or you deny it. There's no middle ground. Okay? Either you accept that this is true or you deny it. But do you know that if you deny it, then you are denying something that the scriptures speak of so clearly? One old writer, uh, Octavius Winslow, puts it this way. He says that the sin of denying Christ's Godhead is second to none. Yea, it is the sin of sins. It uncrowns him as king and consequently divests him of all of his regal power and glory. It degrades him to a level with a fallen creature. And it tramples him underfoot as the dust of the earth. So if you deny that the one born in Bethlehem's major is the eternal son of God, then you are casting this one under your foot. You're saying he is but a mere creature. And all of the Bible then must go, friends. All of it rests on this fact that Jesus is God. And in fact, listen to what Jesus himself says about denying this truth. Jesus in John 8 and verse 24 says these words to the Pharisees. He says, if ye believe not that I am, you shall die in your sins. If you believe not that I am, That He is exactly the one who He has claimed to be. The eternal Son. Full of glory and wisdom and power. If you believe not that this is who He is. The Word of God says you shall die in your sins. Can I say that to any of you who find yourself not believing these things today? This is a warning out of Holy Scripture. You are casting the eternal Son, the glorious Son of the Father, underfoot. Would you not accept this as truth? and Humbly come to Him and cry out to Him today to be your Savior and to believe in Him as the eternal Son. But what about those of you who do then accept this for what it is, the living truth of the living God, that the one born in Bethlehem's manger is indeed the eternal Son, full of glory. What then of you? What are the implications from this, what we've looked at today for you? And I want to say three things by way of application. And with this, we're going to close the sermon. Three things to you, if you accept this as truth. And the first is this. I want you today to be astonished at the love of Christ for a poor sinner like you, that he would leave heaven's glory for your salvation. Be astonished at the love of Christ for poor sinners like you, that he would leave heaven's glory for your salvation. Now you understand that when Jesus became incarnate. He did not cease to be God. We're going to talk about that a week from today. He didn't cease to be God. He still was receiving the worship and adoration of angels in heaven. He still had all the attributes of deity when he lived and walked uh, upon this earth. But nonetheless, he did still lower himself in becoming man. He didn't cease to be God, but what he did was he assumed, he took to himself a true human nature. And in the words of the hymn that we just sang a little bit ago, Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, All for love's sake becamest poor. Thrones for a manger, did surrender sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor. This one, the eternal Son, full of glory who knew the delights of fellowship with His Father from all eternity. For your sake was born in that manger in Bethlehem. And He lived a life of poverty. And He was scorned by the people. He was misunderstood by His own disciples. He was abandoned by His friends. He was in his own flesh crucified on Calvary's tree. And while he hung from that cross, he heard those words which are almost in utterance, or he, he uttered those words which we can almost not fathom that he would ever utter, the one who had dwelt eternally in the Father's bosom when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he did it because he became the one who bore the wrath that we deserve. He became the Savior, substituting Himself for us so that we might be saved. Can you fathom the love of this Son of God for sinners like us? Be astonished by it. Be overwhelmed by it. Oh, that He would love us such. Let me give you a second point of application. The second point of application is this. It is, Oh, what a firm foundation you have for your faith when it is built upon Christ, the eternal Son. What a firm foundation you have for your faith when it is built upon Christ, the eternal Son. Do you know that most people in this world First of all, believe in heaven and want to go to heaven and think that they're going to go to heaven when they die. Take a survey, you go out in the streets today, the vast majority of people that you will run into will say those things. But if you were to go on and ask them, why do you think that you're going to go to heaven? Their answers may vary a little bit, but usually it will be one of these things, either I've tried to be a pretty good person. Or they will say, well, I don't really know, but I think it's all going to turn out okay in the end. Now, friends, either one of those answers, either the answers of our own works or our wishful thinking about what might come after death is a pretty flimsy foundation to build your hope upon. It does not stand. But, oh, dear friends, how different it is for you and for me when the mediator of the better covenant, the one who has, by his death, life, death, and resurrection, secured our entrance into heaven, is none other than the eternal Son of the living God. And so, dear friends, when we ask, who was it, that lived for us, it was the eternal Son made flesh. Who died for us in our place, it was the eternal Son made flesh. Who rose again from the dead, who is now at the right hand of the Father, it is this eternal Son who is interceding for us, pleading for us, right now before the throne of the Father. It is this Son who is going to return again and bring us to Himself. It is this Son of whom we have spoken. Oh friends, do you see, the, the foundation of the hope that we have, it is built upon the eternal Son of God who is our Savior. And it is upon this One that we cast the anchor of our faith. And we can cast it deeply. He is the Savior who never will, who never can disappoint because of who He is. Oh, what a firm foundation the Christian has for our faith. Do you see how this leads to assurance? How it leads to joy? How it leads to peace? When our faith is built upon this eternal Son. Third point of application, and with this we close. And it is simply this point of application. Oh, how we then should delight in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one in whom the Father delights from all eternity. And if the Father delights in him in this way, how we should delight in in him also. You know, there's nothing boring about the Lord Jesus Christ. Children, can I say that to you? There is absolutely nothing boring about the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that the more that you come to know Him and read about Him in His Word and think about Him and pray to Him, you will come to find Him more thrilling than whatever it is that you most value now, whatever sport you most enjoy playing, whatever activities you like to do the best. Jesus is far more thrilling than any of these. He's the one in whom the Father takes everlasting delight. And I can just call upon you to take delight in Him also. And If you say, I don't don't delight in Him, I don't love Him as I ought, well, repent of your sin and look more for Him in His Word. And I tell you, He will not delight the soul that is hungry for Him. He He will not fail to delight the soul that is hungry for Him. Oh, friends, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be ravished by Him. and Love Him the more. Might the Lord help us to each to do this, uh, this Christmas season and in the years that follow. Let's pray together. Lord, our God in heaven, we thank You so much for this eternal Son. Lord Jesus, we thank you. You are the all-glorious one, the one full of endless delights, the one who has dwelt from eternity in fellowship with the Father. Lord, our minds cannot begin to comprehend your greatness and your grandeur, but this we know, that you, the living Son, have become our Savior through that loving act of incarnation and of atonement. Lord, how we praise and exalt your name today. Help us to delight in it all the more, we pray. In the time that comes, in the days that follow, Lord, we pray all of these things.